Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From Luminary, this is British Villains. The moment news of the robbery broke, the British newspapers were all over it. The crime of the century had arrived and they couldn't get enough of it. This is the Coventry Evening Telegraph, August 8th, 1963. The mail train robbery earlier today was the biggest and the most audacious that has ever occurred in Britain. A hold-up by a gang of 20 to 30 armed men brings a new and alarming dimension to armed robbery. It provides lurid evidence that there are in our midst men who will stop at nothing. This is from The Sphere, August 24th. The great mail train robbery of August the 8th must surely result in more realistic measures to deter the Moriarty's of successful crime. The success and immunity of the master criminals show clearly that the Moriarty's were usually a jump ahead of the Holmeses. And this, the Illustrated London News. A guard on the uncoupled portion of the train discovered that the engine and two coaches were missing and raised the alarm. But the thieves had nearly an hour's start on the police. Preliminary estimates of the haul put it at nearly three million pounds, and the reported number of robbers involved varies from between eight and 30. It's the morning of August 8th, 1963. Our crew of 16 or so villains have stopped a train, stolen a ton of readies, and bolted to a hideout to chop up the cash. They're surrounded by 120 mailbags containing 636 packets of banknotes. The windows are blacked out, to avoid any uninvited guests. Working by candlelight, they counted out 2,595,997 pounds and 10 shillings.
the crew had pulled off the robbery of a lifetime. Now all they had to do was keep getting away with it. Every day for the rest of their lives. I'm William Green and this is British Villains. It caught everybody's imagination and it dominated the news. The biggest crime in history and everyone was a detective. At the heart of policing is a, is, is a, is a stony presence. The only specification they had was they had to arrest criminals. That was it. And they had to do it whichever way they could. For the next few hours, days, weeks, the crew, and in fact any villain with previous, would have to be on their guard. Not only did they need to dodge the police, they would also need to dodge the public. It was a national manhunt, and no matter whose side you were on, everyone wanted to meet the great train robbers. The story was picked up overnight by the press. From then on, it was relentless. For months and years to come, any time there was a development in the case, it was front-page news again. It was like a crime drama, a cops and robbers movie that the entire nation, the entire world, loved to watch. It was partly because it was a very unusual event and a lot of money was stolen. It was the most money that had been, ever been stolen at the time. Um, so that obviously made headlines. This is Nick Russell Prevere, author of the book The Great Train Robbery, Crime of the Century. A train being held up in the middle of the night uh, and there were some great photographs in the press. They were sort of given more or less um, unhindered access to the crime scene right on the morning of the robbery and that caused its own problems because there were press people wandering around taking pictures. Imagine trying to hide when everywhere you go, everyone you encounter at the grocer, the pub, the bus stop, everyone is suddenly an amateur sleuth. From the crew's perspective, it was a fucking nightmare. Remember that insignia on the military hat Bruce Reynolds was wearing? Who dares wins? But had they won? Only time would tell. The truth was, the police were just not equipped to deal with a robbery of this size. So the initial stages of the investigation were clumsy. And that's me putting it mildly. The inefficiency early on gave the crew a much needed head start. But how long would it be before their luck finally ran out? It's one thing to pull off the crime of the century, but it's a whole other one to get away with it. Well, Share you know for what the... they say? What? If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. My dad, a.k.a. Derek Glass. Right. Trust me, he would know. All right, let's look at how the police royally messed this up from the get-go. First off, they immediately had the train move to a nearby station called Cheddington. Think about that. This happened within a couple of hours of the robbery. A massive piece of evidence was moved without waiting for fingerprinting, forensic experts, nothing. Key evidence was compromised from the very beginning. In fact, according to Russell Prevere, some genius superintendent at the transport police returned the engine and carriage because he insisted they be put back into service. Most likely to give the appearance there had been no disruption to the Queen's Royal Mail. God forbid we upset the Queen. Basically, anything that was important to solving the crime was moved before forensics from Scotland Yard could do their thing. 
So before we get any further into the investigation or the press frenzy surrounding the train robbery, it helps to understand a little bit about the relationship between police and villains in the early 1960s. Back then, the relationship was corrupt in many ways, at least from the villain's perspective, if you want to call asking a copper for a bit of information corrupt. What I'm telling you is, it's been long suspected that Bruce Reynolds and the villains had a man on the inside. Well, again, there obviously was somebody giving a bit of information. This is Duncan Campbell. He's a former senior correspondent for The Guardian newspaper and also the author of several books about crime. Almost always, whenever there's a major uh, crime, a major burglary, a major robbery, the first thing that the people, that the police do is look for the inside man. And almost always they're right. And uh, obviously somebody was tipping off the great train robbery crew as to when there was going to be the most amount of money and on which bit of the train and so on. So inside man it was. At the heart of policing is a, is, is, a, is a stony presence. This is Graham Satchwell, the former detective superintendent with the British Transport Police. It's not really a, a caring profession. It pretends to be. That's what I discovered. And that is, a, that is corrupt for me. That's not the way it should be. I should point out that Mr Satchwell surprisingly also wrote a book about the Great Train Robbery. His book, Great Train Robbery Confidential, was actually written in collaboration with Tommy Wispy one of the last remaining train robbers, before he died in 2016. Well, yeah, um, uh, it's, um, it was my life, of course. It's what I did. I was consumed by it for 30 years. And he found out firsthand the line between police and villains isn't always clearly defined. The first shock to me was that, you know, it was um, quite a corrupt organisation in two very real ways. And at a junior level, people would, you know, take uh, minor bribes uh, in, in many, many ways, in the many circumstances that led to that. So it seems that during the 1960s, the police and villains were as thick as thieves. Let's find out what Dick Cobbs was doing that summer. August 1963, I was, uh, I was on holiday with my, my parents in, uh, in Hailing Island and I was kicking a ball about outside and I heard my parents laugh and the TV was on and I went inside and they were reporting that there had been a robbery of a train and... It absolutely caught my imagination. It it absolutely grabbed me, as it did my entire family and my my parents, certainly were the straightest, most non-criminal people you could ever imagine, but it caught everybody's imagination. And this is in a time when we didn't have 24-hour news. This is, this is at a time when you, you, know, you had restricted uh, TV channels and the news was on twice a day and that was it. There was no daytime television. Nonetheless, it absolutely dominated everything. It, 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 and it dominated the news. It seems to go on and on. And I remember as a kid, I would read the newspapers, I would watch the television, and I was absolutely fascinated by this idea of robbing a train, which is something that I associated with the Wild West. London in the 1950s and 60s, the criminals and the police officers just knew each other. Yeah, much has been said and written about police corruption, but the reality of being a professional criminal 
is that you need to have relationships with the police. You, you just do. You, you need to know police officers who will pass information to you. Maybe you pay them money, which makes them corrupt, or maybe you're also giving them information, which makes you an informant. Even my dad says this is true. On the street, in the pub, for a professional villain, a bobby could be somebody to say hello to, or if required, something more. Either way, you need that connectivity if you're going to have a career. If you're going to do it once, fair enough, you can do it once. We could go out now and we could plan something now and we could go out and we'd probably get away with it once. That would be it. We wouldn't get away with it anymore because you need this connectivity, you need relationships, you need to be able to get on with the police and you need information. Information is the currency that this world runs upon. Well, the thing about in, in those days, it was a very fine line, you know, I mean... Nick Reynolds, son of Bruce Reynolds. Some of the jobs that my dad and his firm did were actually put up by coppers, you know. Sometimes they would say, he's a right horrible little bastard, that geezer over there, we can't get him, so we want you to go in and clean him out. You know, but don't get, you know, nothing too nasty, nothing too naughty sort of thing. And uh, they would drink together and socialise. I mean, without doubt, there was a kind of weird social, um, kind of ad- a weird kind of mutual admiration um, between some of the villains and, um, and, and, and some of the coppers. I mean, villains and the police often hail from the same neighbourhood. So maybe they swapped a bit of information here and there to help each other out, usually over a pint or two. It was a heavy drinking culture, and that drink, that heavy drinking culture carried on right away into the 80s, certainly into the 80s. Heavy drinking like I'd never seen anywhere else before is quite extraordinary. Um, they had a lot of autonomy over their, over their day. They didn't have as much paperwork as they've got now. As I said, they were allowed to be out and about drinking. That's gone nowadays. This informality and relationships that they had with uh, civilians led to a certain amount of corruption. And corruption was a feature of detective work. However, it was a feature of detective work which could also work for good policing. Because the attitude was, if you want to nick villains, you've got to go where villains are. That's what they used to say, you know. If you want to nick villains, you don't go to church, you go into the pubs, you go into the clubs, you get to know people. This was their attitude. Regarding the train robbery, the case soon outgrew the local police force. Scotland Yard was involved pretty much from the first day. Down in London, a big meeting took place on the afternoon of August 8th, the same day as the robbery. About 30 people were present. The transport police were there, Metropolitan Police, officers from the Travelling Post Office section and from the British Rail Security. Now, eventually, the investigation would be given to London's famous Flying Squad, a unit within Scotland Yard with a man named Tommy Butler running the show. Tommy Butler, an odd fella, a lifelong bachelor who still lived with his mum. But we'll get into that in the next episode. At this point, all you need to know is that everyone's just trying to figure out what the hell just happened in the last 12 hours or so and quickly try to find out who's responsible for what. In the 60s, the, the, the police were also very territorial. They had their, their own districts in the Metropolitan Police, which is the London Police Force. They had their own districts and they tended to stay in those districts unless they were uh, seconded to some specialist unit. So basically, each police division was its own entity with its own way of operating. 
So you had the uniform branch and you had the CID, Criminal Investigation Department, which is the detectives. And they were the two main groups. There were a few other specialist groups, but basically whatever area, whatever district you were sent to that you were working from, you dealt with crimes and criminals and victims in that area and you tended not to go outside it. If you were a member of the CID, if you were a detective, you had a lot more freedom than the uniform branch. Uniform branch were quite militaristic. They paraded at the beginning of their shift every day. They had to show their their truncheons, their their um their, their weapons that they had, the the, the, the short stick that, that is the only weapon that they carried in those days. Um, and they had to, um, they were on a beat system and they had to perform this beat, which was a very militaristic notion taken from the, uh, the 19th century. And that was the uniform branch. Personally, I steer clear of policemen, uniform or otherwise. My take is you don't want to see a cop until you absolutely need them. Whereas the, the detectives, the plain clothes branch, they were literally plain clothes, and they were quite free pretty much to do what they wanted to do. They were not restricted and restrained. The only specification they had was that they had to arrest criminals. That was it. And they had to do it whichever way they could. So they would be going into pubs and they would be going into clubs and they would be talking to people and they would be getting information and they would have relationships with local people, some of whom were criminal and some of whom were not. I'm actually surprised any policing got done in those days, considering all the booze they were drinking. And I can remember in the 1980s going to a CID party, Christmas party, and I walked into this room and it had the most sumptuous buffet I've ever seen in my life. It was like something the royal family had put on. You know, it was unbelievable, the food. And I said, who's paid for this? And I was told, local businessmen it's like, oh, all right, I'll ask no questions, you know. And every now and then, a large bloke with a broken nose would come in with a case of whiskey on his shoulder and put it behind the bar and shake hands with the uh, detective who was working behind the bar and, and away he went. And that was in the 80s. That was the tail end of that culture. That's not possible now, but that was the tail end of that culture. But certainly, you go to the 60s, it was even more prominent. It was even more prominent. So, yeah, things have changed. Yeah, things have changed. Things were very different back then. It was a dysfunctional relationship, but it worked for both sides. So I think that's the major the major thing, that, that corruption re- and relationships with, with, uh, with villains was, was far more obvious. It's not gone completely. It will never go completely, but it was far more obvious. It was far more overt. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. 
So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Anyway, let's get back to the crew, still hiding out at the farm, killing the hours after the robbery. After they counted the money and divvied up their wax or their take of the proceeds, as the hours tick by, they smoke roll-ups, brew endless cups of tea and wait and wait. As instructed, wearing their gloves to avoid fingerprints. Or at least that was the plan. Someone gets the idea to play Monopoly using some of the stolen cash notes. All the while they have one ear on the police radio and the national radio service monitoring the news bulletins. In his memoir, Bruce Reynolds said the radios were crackling all day, both the VHF and the conventional radios. The activity was awesome, with the boys in blue buzzing everywhere. This is key, because the radio is how they heard the news about the vehicles. So on Friday lunchtime comes a report that the police now suspect the thieves used army-type trucks. So their plan to drive back to London in a pair of Land Rovers and a lorry was suddenly a fucking terrible idea. But with the police buzzing around the countryside, waiting it out at the farm wasn't a great idea either. You might think that in the countryside... There are not that many people around, so you're kind of less conspicuous. It's easy to hide. Russell Prevere again. But in fact, talking to somebody who lives in the countryside, you've only got to go down the road wearing a different coat and everybody in the neighbourhood is going to be talking about it, let alone if there's 16 strangers who suddenly come and take up residence in a farmhouse, even though they're posing as decorators. Everybody's going to be talking about it. You're very, very conspicuous in a rural community. Remember, the crew was made up of blokes mostly from South London. They were city boys, so of course they thought the rambling countryside would be a great place to hide out. When, actually, it was probably the worst. Country folk noticed things, small details, anything that seems out of routine. Maybe the farm was a mistake. Maybe, like Roy James suggested, they should have driven a fleet of Jaguars back to London in the middle of the night. 
Russell Prevere thinks so. He says the farm was the crew's most disastrous mistake. I say hindsight is a wonderful thing, Nicholas. Here's my dad's take on the decisions that were made in regards to leaving the farm. After the event, they were successful in getting the money off the train. They drove to Leatherslade Farm and there to count the money. It was in sacks. And after it took a couple of days to count it and then divvy it up into your own whack, if you like. Roy said, I want to go back to London get a car and come back and Bruce said, we'll leave it for a day or two because we will all should leave one after the other. You know, we can't have a fleet of Jaguars coming up here. So that's what happened. Bruce would go down and get his antique when he was dealing with antiques, borrowed the van and got him and a couple of others away with his money and that's how they took the money away from there. At one point in his memoir, Reynolds says... There has to be momentum established in a robbery. Nobody can be cold. They have to be G'd up so that important decisions are made in a split second and there is no time for negative thoughts to creep in. Maybe that's why things started to unravel. Too much time on the farm sitting around playing Monopoly. Too much time not passing go, not collecting $200. Maybe they lost that momentum that Bruce was talking about. The following morning, Friday, August 9th, the BBC Radio News announces the search for the villains will reach 30 miles around the scene of the crime. Slip up number two. Remember when Roger Caldry told Mills, the train driver, not to move for at least 30 minutes as the robbers left? Armed with this information, the police figured out that the crew must still be in the neighbourhood. The crew quickly came up with a new exit plan, and the new plan was short but radical. Every fucking man for himself. At midnight Friday, the crew scrambles, but they definitely do not execute their departure with the same micro-planning they had applied to the robbery. How many days after the robbery did they find the farm? About, it was about six or seven days. It was five days, actually, but pretty close. Here's what we know for certain. Early morning, August 8th, the crew robbed the train. By the end of August 9th, they had fled the farm. They left thinking they'd done a pretty good job cleaning the farm. They even thought to lock the Land Rovers away in a shed and give the lorry a coat of yellow paint to make it look less suspicious. But remember when I said that country folk remember small changes? Well, on the morning of August 13th, two local policemen working off a tip drove up to the farm and noticed blackout curtains in the windows, an unusual feature on a farmhouse. They also found the remains of a bonfire. They found the lorry, the Land Rovers, and then in the cellar, several bulging bags of banknote wrappers. I find it really strange, because when you read the long list of items found around the farm, it suggests that the crew didn't even try to hide their tracks, except for one of the robbers. Danny being a proper army man, he was a little bit astute than the other robbers when they had their hiding place. Apparently, I only found this out. He wouldn't sleep in any bed, wear gloves all all the time, 24-7. But that, with the train robbers, some of them, they were stitched up with the fingerprints. That's right. Danny Pembroke. 
the only member of the crew who managed to avoid prison after the robbery, and then vanished into thin air, giving up a life of crime and fading into obscurity, working as a London cab driver until his death. Of course, after the police released photos of the farm and what was left there, the newspapers had a field day. Headlines joked that the crime scene had more clues than an Agatha Christie novel. When it went off, the first bit of news was it said, train stopped, hundreds of thousands of pounds stolen. Right. And then every day, it's the biggest crime in history, and everyone was a big detective. The Great Train Robbery was a media sensation. Eventually, the reward would climb to £260,000. That was a huge amount of money in 1963. Over $7 million today. That's more than each of the robbers would have gotten. The Daily Express ran an article called Squealer's Bait that listed out everything you could buy with a quarter of a million pounds. A yacht, a Rolls Royce, nice country house, a world cruise, a private plane, loads of champagne, and even then, you would still have plenty of money to invest and live off the rest of your bloody life. Marilyn Wisby was old enough to remember hordes of reporters knocking on her mum's door after her dad got arrested. It was, it was worldwide because I remember all, you know, television cameras or being interviewed like my mum get asked and by the German top magazines and that. She'd done interviews. I, I think it was because, one, it was against the government. And don't forget, at that particular time, England were going through a terrible depression. Right. There was the Suez Crisis, the Prime Minister got the yeah, sack. the Perfumo scandal. The Perfumo scandal, shagging Russian spies, all that. Right. So it was the, the the country was, and the papers said, at least someone's done something right. They would think the robbers were good. Best not to glaze over this point. That year, there was a political scandal where the Secretary of War, a man named John Perfumo, a married man who got connected via sex to a naval attaché at London's Soviet embassy. Prime Minister Perfumo, who was shagging the Russians' spur to spy in the same bed as the Russian was, that was headline news. The Cold War is raging. Sexual liaisons connecting the government to a Russian diplomat. It's a massive security risk. This unfolding drama was a huge headache for the Prime Minister. So, would it be fair to say that the government was overjoyed to see the train robbery suddenly knocking Mr Perfumo off the front pages? No question. The timing couldn't have been more perfect. So suddenly the establishment is saying, this is an audacity, these people must be caught. Graham Satchwell again. At one point, the government considered recalling all active currency and replacing it with new currency in an attempt to stop the robbers spending the stolen cash. Of course, they soon realised that this would be way too costly. So pressure is immediately uh, brought in government upon the Home Secretary to the Metropolitan Police Commissioner to the head of the Flying Squad, and suddenly everything is go, go, go to catch these people. So the investigators are still roaming the countryside, trying to make sense of it, figuring out the mechanics of the operation. Police in the city make some knee-jerk guesses as to which known London villains might have the chops to pull off this kind of raid. There was no one that could do that. The the Yard knew that. That's why Butler got involved. He was the chief superintendent of Scotland. He said, it's got to be a London mob. Tommy Butler. 
head of Scotland Yard, was a man who lived and breathed police work and was on a relentless quest to arrest villains. A lifelong bachelor who again lived with his mum, waiting for a career-defining moment to come along. That moment had arrived. And with the great train robbers, as you know... Duncan Campbell, a former senior correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. You know, who could possibly do this? Oh, we know A, B and C and probably D could. Let's give them a, a shake. Let's see what they were up to. In fact, it was the post office archive. That's Nicholas Russell Prevere. The post office carried out their own separate investigation um, of this event uh, and they had an investigation unit um, and when I was going through the archive of that, I came across um, two lists which actually had been given to the head of Scotland Yard, Commander Hathrow, and the head of the uh, flying squad, Tommy Butler. Butler was also known as the Old Grey Fox, as well as One Day Tommy, because that's how long it took him to lock up criminals. Anyway, the list. The fact that the Scotland Yard had... Um, the names, apart from Biggs and the and the train driver they brought along, as far as I remember, everybody, yeah, apart from Biggs and the train driver came along, everybody who took part in the raid is on one of those two lists. And uh, they, the police had those within, yeah, sort of kind of a couple of weeks of, of the robbery taking place. So the idea that they were sort of going to be Sherlock Holmes type detectives and and have to work out okay so who are these people that obviously narrowed the field considerably i mean it, it was clear by the nature of the raid that these are going to these are quite big time sort of kind of probably london criminals but to have a list through you know informants the actual names of who these people were um clearly cut down a lot of time one of the things Russell Prevere emphasises in his book, and you'll hear other people say this, the intensity of the investigation and the media involvement wouldn't have been there if Jack Mills hadn't got hurt, if the raid had been blood-free. The government used the violence to support their plea for the public's help and slowly but surely diverted the attention away from the Perfumo scandal. I don't think it was intended as a violent crime, and I've spoken to some of the people involved and particularly, I suppose, Bruce Reynolds. Here's Duncan Campbell again. And I think the last thing they wanted was to commit violence. And I think because Jack Mills, the train driver, was coshed, that cast a shadow over the whole exploit. That shadow would influence everything. The investigation, the trials, public perception, everything. So it sort of seemed to kind of tune into something that was part of a uh, a fictitious sort of thing. And, you know, we all love crime stories when they're fictitious because, of course, there's no real consequence in those things. And it gives us this excitement, people doing daring things and breaking the moulds and all the rest of it. We're still only at the beginning. We haven't even gotten to the trial yet, to the jailbreaks, to the international escapes and the botched plastic surgeries. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, botched plastic surgeries. At this point in the story, news of the robbery crosses the pond and the robbery is given the name that will go down in the history books. On Saturday, August 10th, two days after the job, the New York Times put a story on its front page. The headline was, The Great British Train Robbery. I don't know for certain if it was the first time this was used, 
but it was the first I could find. So we'd give it the last word. Not even the most jaded viewer of television crime epics is likely to yawn at yesterday's great English train robbery. We hope the imperturbable James Bond has been put on the case. Undoubtedly, Goldfinger or Dr. No is behind this incredibly efficient bit of larceny. How pallid our own crime syndicates are made to look, how wanting an imagination. After all, we hold the copyright on train robbery. Yet now, the best we can say about this updating of Jesse James is that we supplied the cultural inspiration. Next time on British Villains. Those that had been arrested would be tried together and not independently. It was the biggest robbery we've ever heard of. It's unimaginable amounts of money. Somehow all the little bits of evidence against each of them added up to sounding like a lot of evidence against all of them. From Luminary, British Villains is a production of The Cut, Ninth Planet Audio, and Western Sound. Executive producers are William Green, Erin Ginsberg, Jimmy Miller, Hans Sarney, and Ben Adair. The show was written by Rosecrans Baldwin and Vanessa Sadler. Nick Reynolds and Edward Rose composed the theme. Music by Michael Cruz. Producers include Christina Moore, Annette Runhell, and Stephanie Aguilar. The show was sound designed and engineered by Dan Leone. Up next, episode eight, The Flying Squad. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
What if we told you about a major breakthrough on awesome savings on all-inclusive beach vacays? OMG, this could break the case. Case? I'm talking about CheapCaribbean.com. It's full of hot savings. At CheapCaribbean.com, score an extra $175 off site-wide on vacations of four nights or more now through June 3rd. Swim up bar in Punta Cana or dip your toes in the sand on the shores of Cancun. We gotta take this show on the road. Start at CheapCaribbean.com. 